Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join guilt.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. We have a founder that has been pushing his company that he took public back in 1991. I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable journey. You know, we're going to be learning a lot about, you know, ETFs, tokenization, uh, wealth management, competing against giants like BlackRock, I mean, I think that uh, we're going to be learning quite a bit on building and scaling uh, successful companies. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jonathan Steinberg. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So originally born in Long Island. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? I was very fortunate. I grew up uh, in a very loving family, uh, very privileged, um, and uh you know, we moved into Manhattan very young, but, you know, my upbringing was sort of beautiful when I was a young man and as a young boy. And uh, my uh, father, who was a very successful businessman, sort of shaped my ambitions. Uh, you know, I really found my passion and I'm living my dream, to be honest. Because what, what did your father do? When my father was at, he was the first in his family to go to college. He got into Wharton. and he, from Wharton, was able to create the computer leasing industry. It was at a time when IBM had like a near monopoly on computers, and the Justice Department decreed that they had to offer third-party leasing, and he created that. He came out of it um, and, uh, and, and took his company public very, very young. And so all I knew of my father was that he was very successful as a young boy and that he would, you know, public financial services, which is so I always had a dream as a six-year-old, you know, a young boy, that I would be running a publicly traded financial service company, which I am doing. So I'm pretty much living my dream. I have to be, to be honest, I'm pretty happy. So you also went to Wharton, but eventually you dropped out for an internship that it was supposed to be temporary and ended up lasting a little longer. So what happened there? I was never that interested in school. I was always interested in business. Um, and, you know, my... Uh, I was very fortunate being my father's son. I had um, a very strong background on business and the markets, what was going on in current 
in the moment. And so when I got to Bear Stearns in mergers and acquisitions as a summer intern, in one of the morning meetings, I pitched a deal. I pitched the breakup of Xerox. And at that time, it would have been the largest LBO in the history of of the industry. And um, they had never heard of that idea before. And they hired me full time. And so I was able to elegantly not graduate. And it put me on my career to business. So I was very fortunate. So then let's talk about getting you into your career of business, because, uh, you know, this is where everything, you know, when you got started with everything started. So tell us about that moment where all of a sudden you are leaving Bear Stearns, you know, to go after your dream. So I had, um, I had an interesting, I found a small publishing company that was um, trying to buy Guitar Magazine. But what they owned was a financial magazine called the Penny Stock Journal. And I was just interested in all things investing. So I subscribed to it and everything that they wrote about went out of business. It was just a marketing gimmick. And I thought, well, I could do better than that. Um, and so I ended up when I was after sort of two and a half years, three years at Bear Stearns, I negotiated with the seller to buy the Penny Stock Journal since they were trying to move into uh, music publishing. Um, they were willing to sell it to me at a very good price. And I re so I took the Penny Stock Journal. I rebranded it, called it Individual Investor, and I started hiring analysts to do independent, unbiased research for the masses. And my tagline was investing for maximum returns. And I really I took it from 28,000 subscribers to a half a million subscribers. I loved my journalism. So what, what, what did it look like when all of a sudden, you know, you're in the public eye? Publishing was a hard business and everybody was big and I was small. Um, what I was able to do to build the business, I don't know if you remember in the Wall Street Journal, they used to have the dartboard competition. Uh, you would compete against the pros and random picks. And I was the most successful participant ever. I won it like 10 times. And I was able to parlay that into a public offering, a small deal though. So I went public. I took, it was three common, three warrants, and I netted three and a half million dollars. And that was it back in 1991. And so I, you know, I've, I've hustled to make it all come together, but um, very exciting process. And how, how have you seen, I mean, obviously now you've been, you know, in the public markets, you know, as a public company for, for 20 plus years. How has it been, you know, like, how have you seen changes and things, you know, uh, shifting all the way up in, you know, till now? Well, a couple of things. One, being a public company is harder today than it ever was. Also, being an employer is harder today. There's a different social contract between the employee and the employer, not easy to navigate. Um, you know, as a CEO, I have three constituents, shareholders, customers, and employees. And you have to be able to balance all of the needs. It takes a, to build something sustainable, you have to really have a sense of fairness. And, you know, one thing that struck me, my dad created computer leasing and he went public and he used his high-flying stock and he bought an insurance company called Reliance. 
Now, what struck me about that, Reliance was founded in 1792. When he acquired it, it was the third oldest company on the New York Stock Exchange, older than General Electric. And I thought, man, how do you create a business that could go through the Civil War, the Great Depression? How could you create something that's everlasting? And I've tried to figure out what does it take to be a forever company? It's not easy. And I'm not saying I've done it, but it takes evolution. It takes culture. And obviously, it takes success. You have to, no one's going to give it to you. You have to deserve longevity. So in your guys' case, what was that? Uh, because I guess that achieving that longevity too is also adjusting to the markets and what potential customers are asking you for and so forth. I know that for you guys, you know, there was a moment of reinvention. What, what happened there? So, you know, I got into financial publishing in 1988. So at the very birth of the um, sort of the retail investor before um, online brokerage, before the internet. But not so far after I started, the internet came out. So when I saw Netscape come out, I knew my business was going to be at best challenging, if not really in decline. And I wanted to figure out a way to sustain myself. So I started creating indexes like McGraw-Hill that owned Business Week and S&P created indexes. In 1997, I did a story on ETFs when there was only two, the Qs and the Spider, when the wrapper only had um, $40 billion in AUM. So in 1997, the first ETF came in 93. Today, ETFs represent $10 trillion of AUM. But when I did the story and I had no legacy issue to confuse me, I could see that this was the future of investing, liquid, transparent, more tax efficient and convenient. So as a media company who created his own indexes, I ended up selling my media assets, holding my indexes and relaunching as an asset manager. But that transition took longer and was much harder than I expected. And so I went from a high of $11 a share and uh, 100 employees down to three pennies a share. I actually touched one penny a share. Um, so I own over 50, like 58% of the company. Um, I have this IP and a vision. And I was able to convince in 2004, it took me a, a year and a half to do it, but I convinced a man by the name of Michael Steinhardt. He was one of the legends of the hedge fund industry. So Michael Steinhardt, a peer of George Soros, for 29 years, he delivered 24.5% return a year after fees for 29 years. The journal calls him one of the world's greatest investors. I got him a man by the name of Jim Robinson, the former CEO of American Express, and a professor, Jeremy Siegel, to back my IP. Now, to st stay alive, I had to delist from NASDAQ. I had to shed all of my directors of the only director left, and I sold control of the entity. I raised $9 million when I had a $300,000 market cap. I sold straight common, 
at a 400% premium. But when I announced, my stock went up 38,000% in a day. And I was, I went from $300,000 market cap to 125 million. I then used that momentum. I recruited a lot of leadership from iShares. And in June of 20, uh, 2006, I launched 20 funds in a day and Wisdom Tree was born. And today, Wisdom Tree manages uh, $92 billion, has 280 employees and, you know, a highly profitable, you know, net three, you know, net 50 or 60 million on 330 million of revenue and a billion dollar market cap. So it's been a journey, but we're on the most exciting aspects of asset management, ETFs, models, and tokenization. So it's been a very exciting journey. So, so obviously now that uh, that you're making it happen, you know, with uh, with all the employees, the market cap, I mean, now, now it's a, uh, you, you, you've been able to really make it happen, but, but I guess back then, you know, you, you, you could have been viewed as someone that was doing something successfully, you know, and, and well done, you know, with all those employees and everything. I mean, it does take a lot of conviction to pull the plug on something like that and to completely reinvent, you know, uh, your guys' selves. Where did that like high conviction come from to know that you were doing the right thing? So first of all, because I was my father's son. So my father created the computer leasing industry. He also created Telemundo, um, a tremendously diverse background. And we always talk business and we always talk what makes a great business. And so I had a lot of conviction in myself. And as a CEO, I am trying to make the right decision on the least amount of information possible because I've always been small. And if you're small, you have to be early. So making the right decision on the least amount of information, I saw a little bit in ETFs, and I knew that it was revolutionary and, you know, from $40 billion to $10 trillion in AUM, I mean, I wasn't surprised. And so I, I definitely have a lot of conviction, but that also means you have to have checks and balances. There's nothing more dangerous than a CEO with conviction. So you definitely need to know when to change, when to listen to others. And I've gotten obviously better over the years. I, I don't want to win every argument just because I'm the CEO. You want to win only the decisions you should win on merit. So how does listening look like then? You know, when, when you need to really understand who you need to listen to and how you listen to them, how do you go about that? So it really depends on the subject matter. But, you know, within Wisdom Tree, and I have a lot of long tenured employees. I mean, I have a lot of people who have been with me 10, 15, almost 20 years. I have experts in different areas. So I know where I play big, branding, product strategy, uh, culture building, um, but like legal compliance, I know where to listen to. And I'm always fearful of not doing the right thing. I always have to be in the right. Um, and so I just listen to the right people on the right um, subjects. I can hear truth well. I don't know, I don't know, but I hear truth well. 
Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech Domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety, value, and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. And now, last year, you guys took like $12 billion in inflows. Uh, you guys are now competing with uh, the likes of BlackRock. And so, I mean, you guys are really taking on some pretty heavy, heavy hitters here. So, uh, so how, how does that look like when, you know, you're looking to compete with the likes of BlackRock? You know, it's exciting. And I find the creativity of business to be very satisfying. So I have a tremendous amount of passion for what I do. Um, and it is exciting to try, you know, when I was, when I was launching going from media to asset manager, my thesis was how to thrive in a vanguard world. So I was recognizing the power of indexing, recognizing decompression was a fact of life. I actually created a different business model called self-indexing. So, um, you know, Vanguard licenses the S&P 500 from a media company. At the time, it was McGraw-Hill. Um, I create my own IP. I, I keep more of the economics. Um, but, you know, you have to be, they have such a um, BlackRock, iShares, Vanguard, SSGA, they're all trillion dollar asset managers. It's such a high standard of excellence that you have to be willing, that's what it takes to be able to compete with them. You have to be able to deliver what's best in the world. And ETFs are the best wrapper today for exposures. And um, they've conquered every liquid asset class that there is. So it's very exciting, I have to say. But, you know, they bring a lot to the table. They're tough. They're all very tough competitors. Yeah, no kidding. Now, what about tokenization? How do you guys think about tokenization? Because what, what is going on right now is absolutely incredible. For about five years, I have been asking the question internally. What could do to ETFs what ETFs did to mutual funds? And, I and you know, we got to a place about four, three or four years ago that it could be blockchain-enabled tokenization. And where I find myself right now, and it's very, very synergistic to my, to my business. I, I have so many core competencies to what I do in ETFs that today we've only spent $30 million on tokenization to get to the place where this month, Wisdom Tree will be launching Wisdom Tree Prime in the app store. So we are creating a new distribution model. We're creating a mobile app, really a super app 
for financial services. It'll be iterative. So it comes out this month. It'll there'll be additions throughout the course of the year. And then really like January 1st, we blow it out from a, a marketing standpoint. But it's very exciting. I find myself today that Wisdom Tree is the leader in tokenization of liquid assets. Now, when I launched ETFs, I did it in 2006. The spider came out in 1993. I was committed with tokenization, with what would come next to be first. And I find that I am. I'm ahead of BlackRock, JP Morgan, and Vanguard, and everyone else in traditional um, asset management with regards to tokenization. And I think it's going to be um, very disruptive, like the way the internet disrupted newspapers. Tokenization and blockchain-enabled finance is going to change all of financial services. And I find that we're at the birth of it. It's very exciting. So, in, I mean, I'm, I'm actually more excited today than I've ever been. Like I said, I went up 38,000% in a day. I mean, I, I saw early something as powerful as ETFs. This will be even bigger than that. And I'm, I just, I feel very fortunate to be in the place that I am. So why tokenization and blockchain, when they come together, why is it so powerful? So the reason that ETFs won is that it offered the investor better functionality. It will be the same in tokenized tokenization. So as an example, out of my $92 billion, Wisdom Tree manages $13 billion in gold. I'm the fourth largest gold manager in the world. Right now, gold sits in what we call exchange-traded funds or exchange-traded products. And it sits on the side of your investment portfolio, gold. When you do physically backed tokenized gold in the wallet, gold will not just be an investment. It's going to take on characteristics like savings and payments. Gold will be like currency like it was centuries ago. You're going to be able to go to the store and buy groceries with gold or send gold to your children or friends, like you do photographs. And what's also cool, it's not just gold. We see every exposure getting greater functionality, T0 settlement, greater information flow. Um, so the way Amazon had an information advantage over, let's say, Macy's, Wisdom Tree should have an information advantage over JP Morgan. It's very, very exciting. So in your case, I mean, you've been up and running now with the company, you know, since 1988. So 30, almost 35 years. So I guess 35 years, you know, gives a, you know, ground for a lot. And uh, you've seen a lot of ups, you've seen a lot of downs, you've seen market, market cycles, you know, upswings, you know, you've seen... Obviously, most most recently, COVID. You know the financial, you know, downturn in away, uh, the dot com bust, the dot com boom. What have you learned about market cycles, being an operator, and that perhaps that you can inspire to all the people that are listening us to us right now, given the macro environment that we're experiencing? So, first of all, financial services is all about trust, and um, 
Wisdom Tree is built on transparency. So every day we update our AUM every day and our revenue capture. So you can actually calculate my revenue on a going forward basis. Every week we update our um, AU, our inflows and outflows for every fund. So you can just see everything. It's Scale is not enough today. Business model is also extraordinarily important. So if you go back just, you know, a couple of, I don't even think it's two years, Schwab killed commissions, right? They cut commissions to zero. So business models are changing so quickly. You need, so one of the things that we're going to get from um, tokenization is diversified revenue streams, not just an expense ratio, but transaction revenue, net interest income, and lending revenue. So we're really transforming in that sense. But in financial services, business model, risk mitigation, compliance, embracing of regulation. This is just my world. You can't bluff in this space, right? It really requires, and like you said, I had to, I'm a, I'm a pink sheet company in 2008. I have about 4.95 billion when 2008 hits. I lose 65% of my AUM, even though I took in 800 million of inflows through that whole period. Now, I had just pulled off a big financing in at the end of 2007 so that I could actually go through 2008. Yes, I had to lay off people, but I could make payroll. There were times in my career when I would count days to payroll. Um, how many days of payroll do I have left before I have to close shop? So you pick up a just a toughness, um, a sense of you know what is necessary to get it done. You know you got to be able to as an entrepreneur. You got to be able to back your own play. You got to have the capital. You got to have the ability to deliver. Um, there's no other way to do this. And I'm trying to build something that can evolve, uh, compete, and satisfy an ever-changing customer. So now, Jonathan, imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of the company of Wisdom Tree is fully realized. What does that world look like? It's, I appreciate that question. So today, Wisdom Tree has a, a relationship with its customer where we are a part of their um, portfolio. We are individual exposures that build up their portfolio, or we actually sell them portfolios. We pick the different funds and we rebalance it. In the future, with Wisdom Tree Prime, for the, for the next 10 years, I'd like to be to a new group of consumers their primary second financial relationship. And then after that, eventually be their primary relationship. One of the things about blockchain-enabled finance, investing, savings, and payments all come onto one tech stack. So Wisdom Tree is going from just a, an asset manager to a much bigger relationship with its customer. And so over the next 20 years, for many, I'm hoping to be their primary or their second most important financial relationship, competing with their savings account, their credit card account, their brokerage account, all of it. 
Now, wow, that sounds like a pretty incredible future. Let me tell you, Jonathan. Now, now imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you to perhaps 1988, you know, that moment where, you know, now you were, you know, getting going with the company. You just uh, perhaps had left or were in the process of leaving Bear Stearns to really go after your own dream. And you have the opportunity of, of seeing that younger self, Jonathan, you know, to have a chat. And you're able to give that younger Jonathan one piece of advice before launching the business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? So it's been such a hard, risk, risky journey that you would almost say, you know, don't do it. Um, but I wouldn't, to be honest, I wouldn't change anything. You, you know, my dad used to wake up and he would go, wake up, kids. It's a new day. He had this passion. I wanted that passion and he had tremendous confidence. I wanted his passion and his confidence. So I needed all the body blows. I, you need the experience. And so I wouldn't, I would, I guess the only, I, I knew this when I started, but this is the only advice I would give other people. You've got to find your passion and pursue it with great integrity. Um, but that's really, otherwise life gets heavy. Life gets dreary. And so I just enjoy what I do. I, you know, I love the people I work with. I have a philosophy of only hiring happy people, people comfortable in their own skin. And um, so I'm just having a ball. But I really, I can't, I, I wouldn't wish to avoid my challenges. My challenges have made me who I am. I hear you loud and clear. And, and, and just out of curiosity to double click on that on hiring happy people. What is one question that you ask to make sure that they're going to be happy people and not like downers? I was not, you know, I said I didn't do well in school. I didn't graduate. I was highly dyslexic. I had trouble reading. Um, I learned to read people before I could read books. And I said to you, I try to sense, hear truth. I, 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 you never know, and you can be wrong, but I'm looking for people who are just comfortable in their own skin. And you can just sense sincerity or not. I don't know. But I can see that my people have appreciated that. I'm, I'm not involved in much hiring today, but I love the the diversity and the quality of the people that we've been bringing on. Um, and we've gone to a hybrid remote first orientation. So my people are, I, I mean, I'm really, we're a hybrid organization, but remote first. It's working beautifully. So I'm back on Long Island, looking at the ocean as we speak and just, uh, you know, enjoying it. That's amazing. So, Jonathan, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? An email at uh, jsteinberg at wisdomtree.com. Amazing. Well, easy enough. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. I appreciate so much you inviting me on. Thank you for the opportunity. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.